If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. And so I want to give a special thank you to Lee Stepper, who just gave us this five-star review. I discovered David Barkertley's podcast several years ago and have been listening ever since. David has interesting and purposeful conversations with the leading lights of science fiction and fantasy. I consistently learn a lot from the show, whether it's a roundtable discussion of schlocky 80s Dungeons & Dragons movies or a conversation with a grandmaster of science fiction. I particularly enjoy the balance between screen, print, and gaming content and welcome the exposure to great new material that has enriched my life. So big thanks again to Lee Stepper for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 414 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Max Berry. He's the author of several novels, including Jennifer Government, Company, Machine Man, and Lexicon, and is also the developer of the online nation simulation game Nation States. And we'll be speaking with him today about his new science fiction book, Providence. And now here's our interview with Max Berry. All right, so we're here with Max Berry. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, and so your new book is called Providence. So how'd this book come about? I actually have the very first note that I made for this book, which because I keep all the notes that I ever make uh, on my writing. So I have um, 130,000 words of notes and, and stuff that got cut out of the book uh, that never made it in. Um, and the first thing I ever wrote for this thing was there's a war, but the ship takes care of all the good stuff. So there was the idea for me that it would be kind of interesting if we had a situation where there is a war against an alien enemy, uh, and the human crew is kind of redundant in that the, the technology is so advanced that they, that it can take care of all the, the decisions for the humans. Um, there, it's kind of this idea that, um, in 2020, we have drones, we have uh, a lot of futuristic technology that has replaced the role of humans in combat. And, uh, the, the role of, of, people is shrinking all the time. So I thought, okay, if we had these people and, and they're supposedly soldiers um, and they're supposedly these so important people who have been um, taken away and, and thrust into this role where they have to save the planet against an alien species, but uh, it's all, it's kind of for show in that we don't really need them there. Um, then, then what could happen from there? And I didn't have any idea of where the real story would go from that point, but it's, um, it, that was the jumping off point for me. Just, um, this idea of, I guess, taking a story, um, that is the kind of story that I'd read before. I'd read a ton of science fiction, um, you know, as a kid and all these stories of, of humans fighting aliens and, and the sort of possibilities of what could be happening in other races and other worlds, um, uh, was really interesting to me. But, um, there are parts of those stories that I felt were, I guess, dated now or that didn't really work for me in that, like, uh, I can't imagine a future in which we're fighting space battles, but the humans have to make all these manual decisions about what to do and, and where to aim the guns and even pull the trigger themselves. Like that is, that is not something that's going to happen in the future. It's going to be, uh, the computers will be making those decisions. The computers will be doing the aiming for us. Uh, they largely do already in, in a lot of military operations now. Uh, so yeah, it was, it was a chance to sort of revisit some of the exciting sci-fi that I'd enjoyed as a kid. Um, but do it with, um, 
uh, a bit more of a modern take on it, I guess. Well, you mentioned in that initial note that the the basic idea was that the the humans are just kind of along for the ride, and the ship's AI is really calling all the shots. And I was wondering if you could talk about the title Providence in that context, because it um it had almost religious overtones to me that you know um, once the um, AI gets good enough, you can't question it. You know, uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And yeah, so the idea is that. Uh, they, the war, the warships are called Providence class battleships, and um, they all have names as well. The one in the book is never actually names, but uh, but they the others all have names. And yeah, it's it's as you say, where they're they're run by AIs that um, are corporate AIs. So the the military back on Earth has partnered with um, one company in particular called Surplex to um, put their AI in the ship. Uh, so first of all, it's probably worth saying that the corporations on Earth as well are also run by AIs. So there is kind of um, a very thin line between a corporation and the AI that it runs or possibly that runs it. It's it's hard to to tell which is which because how this comes about is you have um, software that is very good at evaluating the performance of employees and for making decisions on who to hire and fire. And after a while, that means that the software is basically deciding which humans get to make it up. So the software is is really important in this world, although the people in the book don't quite realize it yet. And so that AI is then being put into a battleship to make decisions about where to go, where to find the enemy, how to synthesize the data it's receiving, and how to engage and how to uh, destroy the enemy and save the human race, basically. So um, because it is a truly advanced AI, uh, it's too smart for people to pick apart its decisions. You, they don't really have any ability to say, okay, the AI wants us to do this. Let's um, think about whether it's right or not. It's much more of a black box where it's making decisions and they have to basically just trust the technology. Um, and this is, to me, an interesting part about how AI works now, where it's um, the way that machine learning works is quite different to the kind of programming that um, maybe some of us do or, or did as a kid where you give a computer a set of instructions and it follows them and it produces output. Instead, uh, with machine learning, you just sort of throw a, a box of content at an algorithm and you tell it, you know, these are pictures of cats and these are not. And it just figures out on its own how to tell the difference between them. So at the end of that, you have an AI that can uh, very accurately tell what's a picture of a cat and what's not, but it can't explain how it's come to its decision. And it's really hard for a human to go pick apart its logic because it's an alien kind of logic. So this is um, a question of the book that they've got these the four crew who um, who work with this AI um, but can't really be sure what it is and how it's thinking and why it's making these decisions. Uh, and, and even in the end, whether its goals fully align with theirs. You know, there was a, a guy, I don't know if you know this, know him, uh, Yuval Noah Harari that I interviewed. And he talks about this a lot about how in, in the coming years, people are just going to defer to AIs on all decisions because the AIs are going to be making, um, you know, better decisions than everyone. And right. yeah, no, whole... I haven't heard. Yeah, I haven't heard that, but I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Um, and the technology adva is advancing so quickly where at the moment AI is still pretty stupid in most ways but 
but pretty smart in in a few. Uh, but it's it's amazing how rapidly it's evolving. And yeah, the the sort of unstoppable part of this trend is that it it does work. It's pretty hard to argue against when it objectively does make good decisions better than human decisions. And he was saying even when it comes to you know deciding who to marry and just every decision, well, an AI will be making it for you because it knows better, it knows you better than you do. And there's apparently yes. this like there's sort of a, a a group in Silicon Valley who is investing very heavily in augmenting human intelligence, you know, integrating human brains with uh, computers in the hopes that this is the only way to keep humans in the loop at all as the AIs get better and better. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, that's important to us to keep ourselves in the loop, but it's not really essential, is it? So, I mean, in the end, some solution that will be more efficient uh, and keeps humans out of the loop will probably emerge. So um, in other interviews, uh, these are the uh, science fiction authors and books that you mentioned that you liked. Uh, Larry Niven, The Space Merchant, Neuromancer, Corey Doctorow, Ender's Game, The Last Starfighter, and John Christopher. Is that a pretty good list there of your of some of your favorite science fiction? Yeah. I mean, Philip K. Dick is probably the number one sci-fi author. His short stories in particular, I just love how human they are, but also there's like this melding of um, a single big idea with a really human situation. Um, very often a human who discovers that he's a robot halfway through or, or towards the end. But that really hits a couple of my favorite areas in that it's – it's um, a kind of mind-bending situation. It uh, deals with questions of perception and and how people create their own realities. I find that really interesting how we all sort of create our own stories uh, and live in our own bubbles. Um, yeah, so Philip K. Dick is, is a massive one. Um, yeah, Neil Stevenson, another sci-fi author that I've just adored um, everything he's done. Um, probably Michael Crichton is worth mentioning as, as like a – just a popular sci-fi, just immensely readable stories, um, less hard sci-fi, obviously, than a lot of the above, but still just so accessible and so um, so propulsive in terms of their narrative. He does very clever things with um, the way he structures the story. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned the, the space merchants because, um, you know, I went to I met Frederick Paul, the author, at a, a writing workshop years ago, and it's a, um, a science fiction novel where they add uh, advertising industry has kind of taken over the world it's a dystopian story yes and he said that he actually um he started writing a book about the advertising business and decided he didn't know enough about the business to write the novel and so he actually went and worked in advertising for a couple of years and so that he would know enough to do it and oh wow it seems like i could sort of from what i've read of your earlier novels it seems like they're they're in this very similar vein right this sort of corporate satire um marketing kind of stuff Oh yeah, absolutely. It it definitely is one of those books that feels a bit like it was written specially for me. Um yeah, I never would have guessed that he'd gone and done that research. It reads very much like um the jaded cynical result of a guy who's been working in the industry for a while and is just sick of the deception within it. Um because you know, I I have a marketing background in the sense that I did a a major a major in marketing at university and my first real job before I managed to escape and become an author was selling computer systems for Hewlett Packard and in a sales marketing environment. And you just realize that so much of that is about perception and about creating narratives uh, for people to believe in, regardless of whether they're true or not. Um, and so, yeah, that, that has really never left me. I'm always writing a little bit about persuasion and how people um, perceive things and that can be manipulated. 
Um, so yeah, that that was a terrific book too. Um, the the other books that I like are like less, um, they're sort of on the 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 edge of speculative fiction. Like I really enjoyed um, that the Time Traveler's Wife by Audrey Niffenegger. Um, I really like um, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. Is another big one, and Margaret Atwood. Um, is probably the writer I most admire in this, in the sense that she is just so incredibly skilled at crafting sentences and paragraphs and, and people that you just can completely believe in. Um, and that's a massive part of a story for me. The, the people are, uh, the first part of the story. And if you don't believe in the people, if I don't really care about the people in it, then, um, then it doesn't really work for me. So yeah, I, I've, I really need a story that's driven by a strong character. And, and sometimes you don't find that so much in sci-fi just because of the focus on the technology and on the ideas. So when there's a book that can really get into the people as well, I find that, you know, that's where the magic is for me. Do you interact with a lot of other writers, um, science fiction or otherwise? No, not really. I mean, I'm, I'm here in Australia. So I, I kind of did this weird thing early in my career where I managed to get published in the US before I got published in my own country, just because I was a 23 year old kid who didn't know anything about how you actually do get published. And so I tapped into uh, the Alta Vista search engine as it was at the time. Um, how do you get published? And I found all these results for um, American American websites saying, well, uh, you write a letter to an agent and you summarize your work in uh, a couple of paragraphs. And uh, then you, if they are interested, then they'll ask for a few sample chapters. So um, I had nothing to lose. So I just started writing these um, agencies in New York as, at the same time as I was trying to shop my book around here in Australia. And I found that the Australian industry was um, incredibly slow compared to the Americans. So um, the Australians would take three to six months to reject me, whereas the American agents would reject me within a couple of weeks. So I managed to burn through a whole bunch of American agents um, pretty quickly and then finally got picked up um, by by someone over there. And it's, yeah, it's kind of weird because it's meant that Australia is a foreign market for me. So I have about four layers of agents and editors um, between me and any sort of editor or, or publishing person here in Australia. Um, so, yeah, I don't interact with writers a whole lot, um, especially local authors. I probably email more American authors than I mix with Australian authors. Um, but, you know, that's okay. Like I, the, the part of writing that I love is the bit where it's just me uh, messing around with a story and finally getting it to start to work. I mean, that's that's really fun. Um, the, the other stuff you do with authors, I've always found, um, you know, not to sound incredibly antisocial, but I've always found kind of distracting um, from writing. And I would far rather be um, be writing than talking about writing. I mean, I heard you say that you were reading Austin Grossman's uh, book that's not out yet. So I guess that's one author that you are sort of in touch with or? Yeah, that's right. That's right. You kind of, these guys who get their books published, their early books published around the same time as you, then yeah, you end up sort of um, swapping a few notes with them, um, which is cool. So yeah, basically all these, uh, these authors who um, are, yeah, grossly underappreciated um, by their time. Uh, so, uh, they, you know, cause when they get too famous, they just leave you behind. But yeah, so Austin Grossman, um, he's, uh, I, I'm reading, I get to read his book before anyone's agreed to publish it yet. So I hope, 
I hope it actually gets exposed to the public at some point. But yeah, it's um, it's uh, you know he does these amazing um, novels that are like big ideas, but super super grounded. So they like, superheroes who are very much ordinary people with ordinary concerns, um, and it's um, I guess it's that thing now where you know we've we've all had so many superhero stories and, and probably science fiction stories in general that. We're at about the third or fourth layer of subverting them now. And, um, yeah, he does that really well. To um, promote Providence, you did a sort of choose-your-own-adventure game on your website. And uh, I saw you were talking about how much you loved choose-your-own-adventure books as a kid. I was wondering uh, what were some of your favorite choose-your-own-adventure books? Yeah, well, they I think they just got started. I seem to remember when there were only about 10 choose-your-own-adventure books. And so I don't know when this was. I guess it would have been the very early 80s, given that I was probably reading them when I was about 10. Uh, so, yeah, they they were fantastic. It was so mind-blowing, um, this whole concept of a book where it wasn't just one story, but, but lots of stories, and you could make decisions about where the story would go. That was fantastic. Um, so, you know, obviously a lot of us enjoyed that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, I, I do program as a hobby um it's become almost a, a part-time job in the sense that for my second novel jennifer government i had kind of realized that i needed to do something to promote my books that i couldn't just expect a publisher to go you know land me on the bestseller list uh, without me actually doing something about it to help them so um i i did have this background in hobbyist programming um i loved just making up games um there's a fair bit of crossover in terms of how whether you're writing a novel or designing a game you're creating a dynamic system in which there is the potential for certain interactions to occur so you're kind of setting a framework up um, within which um, every, all the cool stuff can happen so yeah i like i wanted to make up some sort of game it was a good excuse to work on it for three months uh, create this little website uh, which ended up being nation states where you can create your own country that is um, run according to whatever warped political ideals you happen to have and yeah it's it was it turned out to be you know really popular there's like six million nations that have been created on it since i think so i'm far better known for nation states uh, among most people than my novels i think um but yeah so i i've done something like that ever since uh with providence i got to do this um this cool choose your own adventure type thing uh which you can play at providence.training uh and so it is a an interactive adventure where you are part of this four person crew uh, on a on a providence ship and it um i enjoyed it because it got to it was much more like the actual novel than some of the other web things i've done so it wasn't like a game that was very loosely related to the the novel this one actually is you know almost like a little spin off from it um but yeah i got to use some some cool old school graphics in it um which was good fun as well See, I'm a, I'm a big uh, evangelist for the Choose Your Own Adventure book, Space Vampire. I, I bring that up a lot. So I was just curious oh, if you okay. ever read Space yeah. Vampire. Oh, look, I probably did. I, I really think I read just about all of them until they got up to number, you know, about 80 or something. Um, they're probably in the, the hundreds by now or, or maybe more. But, yeah, I can't, I can't think of any ones in particular. But, yeah, I did adore them as a kid. Yeah. Uh, in the book, there's uh, one of the weapons is the VX-10 rifle, better known in the popular press as a lightning gun. 
And uh, I was wondering yes. if you ever played uh, Quake or other first-person shooters, because I kind of... Oh, why? Did that. I rip it off from Quake? I, I did play Quake. Is there a, a VX... What oh, is it, well, VX there's a lightning gun in Quake. It oh, a lightning, lightning gun. Ball. Oh, of course there is. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, no. Yeah, the, the idea of a gun that spits lightning, I mean, that's uh, that's like a gimme. I thought you were going to ask me about the Junior Burger gun. Uh Remind me about the Junior Burger gun. Oh, it just it just floated by. You know that's good because um, there is a gun that's that's referred to as as the or maybe it's not the Junior Burger gun. Maybe no, I think it is. Yeah, um, because um, there is uh, there's a gun that has a nickname as the Junior Burger gun, and I kept waiting for someone to pull me up on that because it's kind of a weird reference, um, and it's like half an in joke that that I had with um, a kid I went to school with like twenty thirty years ago. Um, but yeah, I just, one of those things where I just kept waiting for someone to, to say, you know, so what's the history? How did this gun get the name, the junior burger gun? But, but it hasn't happened yet. Well, wait, so how did the gun get the name, the, the yeah. junior burger gun? <laughs> oh, oh, it's a long story. I have so much research. No, I don't really. Wait, wait, so sorry. You said that there was a, a kid you knew. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah. Yeah, no, it's it because it's he was just um it's actually in the um acknowledgments of the book. I think I mentioned this kid Freddie who um, oh, yeah, yeah. had read a short story of um it was a space setting and there was this crew that um discovers this uh floating spaceship um and again it's the they sort of arrive in this gigantic battleship that has way more firepower than it seems they will ever need. So it's a similar situation to Providence in that respect, where the good guys seem like they've got this under control and there's going to be no problems. Um, and much like in Providence, it doesn't quite work out that way. Um, so in the acknowledgements, I bring this up because, um, my friend Freddie was complaining that they never got to use these guns. And it was, it was such a, an anticlimax that I'd set up all this firepower that never even got deployed. Um, which, you know, at the time I defended because that was like the point of the story that these people were not being saved by their technology. But anyway, I, I understood his point. Um, so yeah, at, at some point, um, you know, it's just, I can't even remember where this came from, but he insisted that, um, my stories needed junior burger guns and has hassled me about this ever since. So I finally got a, a, a chance to like use it as a throwaway label. And, you know, it's totally, you know, not related to anything. It's just one of those suggestive, Things where it's uh, it's it seems like there's a story in the background, but who knows what it is, and it's never going to be explained. So so yeah, it's nothing. Okay, but in your head, you don't. It doesn't fire a small hamburger. No, 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 no. I mean, I mean, in my head, it's because it turns things in, into hamburger meat. I mean, I'm assuming, but, <laughs> but no, I never go there. I did wonder, reading Providence, if you have any experience throwing ninja stars. Um, no, I haven't thrown ninja stars myself. Um, it's the, they play ninja stars on the ship because they are bored and they need something to do and they engage in increasingly risk-taking behavior. Um, they have great medical on the ship, so the, the ship can kind of patch up any minor wounds. So it doesn't really matter if, um, if they get hit by this stuff. But, um, no, myself, I've, you know, I've, I don't, uh, I haven't even, uh, done a paintball thing, which probably is about as close as you could get to it. Um, no, I'm not, I'm not aware if you're allowed to like go throw ninja stars at things. Is, is there a place you can go where you can just go toss ninja stars around? There should be, I guess like, you know, like there's the skate park. I feel like there should yeah. just be the ninja star park. Yeah. I mean, I never thought of it, but now you mention it, I probably could have found somewhere to go throw ninja stars just to, just to check out. Although I think in the the story, they're not actually ninja stars. They're like discs that function like ninja stars. 
Oh, all right. Yeah, they didn't ship the the crew off into space with a box of ninja <laughs> stars. They just yeah made the best that they could with available resources. I see. Well, yeah. So that's the character Anders um, is sort of the instigator of the the ninja star thing. Um, is there anything to say about how these uh, these characters came to you, particularly Anders, who's a sort of oddball kind of character? Yeah, Anders is the one who is the extrovert and has the most trouble with the isolation because they're sent into space for four years. And for one of the crew, that's no problem because he's um, a bit like me. He's quite happy working by himself. Uh, he likes to solve puzzles, um, get answers to things, um, play with his uh, his technology. Uh, but Anders is um, one of these people who's probably doing really badly in lockdown right now where he needs to have the interaction and, and needs to uh, emote more. So, um, yeah, the characters uh, really evolved because I started off, as I said, with this you know quite basic idea that there was a crew on a ship where um, they were supposed to be soldiers, but the ship was doing all the exciting stuff for them. And... I explored that in a few different directions. And the way I write a story in the beginning is incredibly chaotic because I just write scenes and have no idea where they're going. Then I will delete 95% of it, maybe keep a sentence or two that seemed interesting and like it might lead somewhere. Um, try to write a different scene just using that bit. And this process goes on for a long time. I think with Providence, I probably wrote that first note um it was a long time ago. It was it was probably six, eight, maybe even more years ago. You said ten and years in a I saw one interview where you said yeah, ten years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's probably right. So um and it's not like I've been working on it solid all that time because I've been leaving it and coming back to it, um, been working on other books in between. But yeah, it's it's a really, really messy process in the beginning of just trying to find where the story is in all of these little tantalizing bits that seem interesting. And I think for a lot of writers, they um, they maybe don't go through that enough where um, if you have an idea and you think, oh, this is cool, and you, you start off down the path, then you can drive ahead to five, ten, twenty thousand 20,000 words um, just on the, the initial enthusiasm of that idea. And then you realize that you've completely lost enthusiasm for it for some mysterious reason that's hard to pin down. And I think that I figured out for myself, at least, obviously not everyone is like this, but I found that for myself, that's, that's often a sign that I, I started off too early on an idea and I didn't spend enough time in the beginning, um, making sure I had developed it enough that it was, that it really had up a full head of steam before I took off. Um, so for this one, I, I did that for many, many years, tried different scenes. I would write scenes where I had no idea why people were acting the way that they were, but just to see if they would be interesting. Um, and the characters evolved in the middle of that process. So sometimes it was, um, at the point, the, it would be starting with a particular character, um, like Gilly, who is kind of the main character in the book. Um, and the, the entire story was actually told from his perspective, um, in, in an early draft. Uh, so his character would drive the story to a degree in that he's curious. He wants to discover why the enemy acts the way it does. So that would suggest how the story would go. But other times it was more about, um, like with Anders in particular, who's quite a, a weird personality. Um, it was more about having him in a scene and then trying to think about who that person is and why he acted that way. So it was almost going backwards with the character. Um, and one thing that I, I really am proud of with this book is that 
it's has these four people on in the crew and you get all of their perspectives uh, sooner or later and they are hopefully distinct people and they feel really different to you as the reader and you um hopefully gain a bit of sympathy also when you switch into their view and it's like not a not a major deal you're not seeing that things are totally different than you ever imagined but you are hopefully feeling like when you're in the head of Gilly that Anders is being a complete dick <laughs> um, but when you're in the head of Anders you know he's, he's still kind of a dick but he's he's not quite as much uh, as you originally thought so yeah I um, I explored the characters uh, from the middle outwards I guess um, in both directions and uh, it was really much an iterative process of just going over and over the same material until uh, it all started to fit together. In the acknowledgments, you thank your your early readers for reading what you call your incoherent providence drafts. Is that right. self deprecation, or are they literally incoherent oh, early man. drafts? I, uh, I wish it was self deprecation, but yeah, it's. I mean, it's terrible because the way that I work is I you know once I finally got a first draft underway. So at this point, I've maybe been. Um, thrashing around in the first few chapters for years but um, then I've actually gotten all the way to the end of a first draft and I really believe that you need to have a ton of delusion to make a first draft work in that it takes an incredible amount of time to write a first draft and uh, you need so much faith in your own work to get to the end of it that a lot of that faith has to be misplaced you can't like actually write a brilliant first draft um, you know, that doesn't happen. Even great writers don't write brilliant first drafts for the most part. There are annoying exceptions, but, um, they, yeah, they, they are always kind of, um, kind of weak and, and don't come out as well on paper as they, they seemed in your head at the time. So there's this kind of terrible process at the end of a first draft where I've, deliberately allowed myself to fall in love with it more than I should have and I'm deluded about how great it is and so then it's time for me to get some perspective and I ship it off to a bunch of people who generally read my early stuff and who I whose feedback I have grown to to trust and to understand where it comes from and then I um, I use that that feedback to go reread the book and get my own perspective on it and so that's always this terrible process of like falling out of love with the book to a certain degree and realizing, oh yeah, I, I totally realize now that this actually doesn't make sense. Um, like I thought it did, or this character is way less likable than I imagined. So yeah, I, I do feel kind of apologetic towards those, those early readers who put up with some pretty crappy first <laughs> drafts as, as I rewrite. Yeah. You said that you were working on four different books at once over these past years. Yeah, I took a long time after Lexicon, which was uh, my previous novel published in, I think, 2013. So the reason I took so long is I was going back and forth between four different books. Um, so it's, it's quite fun to do that. It's quite, um, rewarding creatively to work on a book for a while. And then when you get sick of it, switch to something new. But it's also a really fast way to finish no books. So <laughs> I, I have, Quite a few finished or almost finished now, but yeah, it's it's been a while between drinks. Do you think in the future that you will sort of um, curb the number of simultaneous projects you allow yourself to uh, engage in? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I, it's not something I planned. I, I'm always just following my own instincts on these things. And for as long as I've been writing books, I still haven't really learned anything more profound than to follow my own instincts and to just 
if I'm enjoying something, if I think something's interesting, then to allow myself to pursue it. And I, I can't, um, force myself to write a book. I actually tried this when I started writing full time. I, I decided that it was such a precious thing to have this time and this opportunity to write full time. So I would take it super seriously. So, um, I, I worked nine to five. Um, I had a little office space. Um, I'm pretty sure I even wore a suit to my <laughs> first, um, my first day, at least maybe my first week before I stopped doing that. And I would hit a word target. So I would do the sort of, um, nano, what is it? The national yeah, NaNoWriMo. Writing. Yeah. Yes. Thank you. Um, where you have to hit a certain amount of words per day. Like I think it's about 2000 words a day. And, and I could do it, but at the end of the month, I had a terrible book because all I was doing was just trying to hit this, this artificial word target. And, you know, as a reader, you don't, you don't want to read a book that somebody has just hit a certain amount of words. If anything, you want fewer words with more impact. So, um, yeah, I, I found that it was a really counterproductive way to work for me. And I've always just trusted my own, um, weird organic process ever since. Um, not to say that I don't, you know, actually have the discipline to plan a book or to rewrite a book or anything like that, but, at least for the important things about deciding what I'm going to work on and where the story is, I, I really respect the need to, to let that, to find that organically and to, to let it, to, to nurture it and not to, to try to pound it into some sort of shape before it's ready for it. So the aliens in the book are called the salamanders. Did you, um, yes. did, did they come to you sort of early on in the process or did they develop a lot as you worked on the different drafts? Yeah, that was again one of the things that came quite late because the story is focused on the crew. And so we don't really know much about the enemy until reasonably late in the book, sort of more than, more than halfway through. And, uh, so for an early draft, they were just an enemy. I hadn't even decided if they were, if this was some sort of story where there was a human enemy or whether it was, um, alien or what kind of alien it was. So, um, and that was okay. That was, I actually could work like that because the the point was that there is this crew who were trying to figure out what kind of war they're in so they they were learning the truth kind of at the same way that i was um not quite of course because now in in the book it begins with this encounter with the enemy so you sort of learn a few important things about them right up front um but there is this question in the book of what is the what kind of life form is the enemy and and also what kind of life form if any is the ai is the the ship that they're actually living inside so it's this question that they have where they begin knowing that the enemy is hostile and that the enemy is attempting to destroy humanity for reasons that aren't entirely clear. But, um, yeah, this question of, of how the aliens act and who they are, um, is, is a big part of the book. Um, and it was an exciting part for me to work on because I wanted to do a story that would play out on a couple of levels. So first of all, you would have this level of people, um, who were living out this sort of very personal adventure. Um, and hopefully you, you care about these people and you think they are making decisions similar to the decisions that you would make in that situation. And, and it can be a story that you believe in. Um, but at the same time, there's this war going on, um, which is kind of like a big wheel turning in the background in that you can't really get a sense of the whole war at once. War is, is a massive thing. So the war involves um, a propaganda effort back on Earth to convince uh, the people there that this 
this war effort is worth funding, that all the people making sacrifices and pouring their tax dollars into building these gigantic battleships is actually worth it. Um, there's the, the actual battle for survival where it's the ship versus the enemy. Um, and also they are, they are kind of in a battle against the universe itself in that we, um, we are these, these little humans on this little planet in this tiny little bubble of, of warm air, um, in a universe that is incredibly hostile, that, that is, that is, uh, hostile to the, to life as we know it. Um, and I've, I've always found that kind of interesting. I have I've probably been a programmer contributes to this as well, but it's this, this battle between, on the one hand, a really logical, cold universe of physics. And on the other hand, these human warm stories and narratives um, and feelings and things that we care about. And I find it fascinating how we can build these, these narratives and we can build, um, relationships and stories that we, that matter to us on the stage that is so heartless. So, um, just if I can reference to, maybe you can answer this question for me because I've wondered this for a while. A while ago, a long time ago, I read this short story about a, um, a man on a spaceship and he's, I don't know where he's going, but he finds that he's got a stowaway. I think it's a young girl who's yeah, stowed away. The Cold Equations ship. by Tom Godwin. Oh, there we go. By who? Tom Godwin. It's the only story that he wrote that's well known. But right. It's... Okay. Wow. That is amazing. You got it so fast. Yeah. <laughs> so the Cold Equations. That's a perfect name for it too. Um, yeah. So it, it was just um, I probably read it in my formative years, and this idea that no matter how much we want it, we can't beat physics. That we are living in this this universe that doesn't care about us at all. So I, I found that a really um, interesting way to explore in this book where we have these these humans who are engaged in this war and, you know, we, the things that matter to us about it, like who survives uh, and whether it's moral and whether it's just, um, are not things that the universe cares about. So it was um, it was uh, a chance to kind of play out this story um, on that, that very cold backdrop. There was actually another story sort of of that era that I was wondering if you had read um, called The Good Work by Theodore L. Thomas where the premise is that there's a guy and it's in the future and you don't have to work. It's all like universal basic income or something, but there are some people who want to work. And so they're told secretly that there's a job that they can do, which is to go around the city and tighten all the bolts because the bolts get loosened by the city vibrating all the machines pumping out free stuff. Does it sound familiar to you at all? Right. No, it doesn't, but, but I'll have to look that up. That sounds awesome. Yeah. And so, so anyway, so the, I'll just tell you what happens uh, for, for listeners and everything. Oh, okay. But so, um, you know, so he, he has this job going around the city, tightening all the bolts and he's happy because he feels so useful and, you know, everything's great. And then at the end, it switches to the point of view of his neighbor's apartment and the neighbor's leaving for work in the morning. And he says to his wife, well, got to leave. The, the loosening crew won't wait. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. So just this idea of that, you know, in a, yes. once you reach a certain level of automation, it's more important for people to think that they, are needed than for them actually to be needed. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, and in Providence, there's obviously this similar idea in that you've got four people on a ship for four years, um, and they're not all that essential for the war effort, at least the fighting part of the war effort. And so they need they need something, um, and what they need is is a little bit different for the different characters. But um, there's the reason there's a life officer on the ship whose sole purpose is really to make sure that the other three, um, who are the only things that can really break on the ship, um, don't break. 
So the salamanders, they have this protective resin around them, and they spit sort of mini black holes. Do you remember when when those ideas came to you? Uh, yeah, the 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 black hole thing I think was pretty early. So they, um, and I'm not sure where I got that from. It just seemed like a cool idea for me that um, these creatures could um, spit out some tiny little dense particle or bunch of particles that um, would be so dense um, they would, or at least they would exert some sort of gravita- gravitational effect that would be the same as if it was a, a very small black hole. And um, the um, a singularity basically that pulls um, things apart just from the difference in the gravitational forces that are affecting them. Um, so yeah, they um, they are kind of this stupid race of creatures. They're, they're not especially intelligent. Um, they're quite anim- animalistic. Um, but they can spread, um, and they can, um, yeah, produce these things, these hucks, as they're called in the book. Um, so they are, they're kind of a force of nature in that regard. Um, they're not a personality so much. And the, the idea there is, um, I was really hoping to deal with, um, aliens, um, both the actual aliens and also the sort of alien sense of this AI, which is, which is possibly an alien or possibly a, a higher power or whatever it is. Um, who are not just humans in robot suits or humans in alien suits, but who do actually think in a completely different way than we do. You mentioned that the humans are being sent along on this mission basically for public relations reasons, because the, the humans back home who are funding this war won't be interested in this war unless there's humans that they can identify with. And um, I guess I was wondering, yeah. are you, um, were you influenced at all? I mean, that's sort of like a real debate that happens where – with space exploration, right, where you could probably find out what's going on on Mars or whatever with robots a lot more effectively than with people. But the question is, if we don't send people, is anyone going to care and continue to support the missions? Yeah, although we got quite affectionate about those Mars rovers, especially <laughs> when they started to break down. That was, yeah, I mean, it's 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 amazing how we can project human emotions onto onto technology like that. But yeah, we we kind of we we really got into that. But yeah, I think the it's, I find it fascinating to imagine if we had a real war, like a major conflict between major powers, what sort of information war would break out at the same time, or misinformation war. Because the rise of social media and misinformation in the last um, decade especially has been astonishing. And we've never really got to see that militarized or weaponized um, to the degree that it would be in a, in a real conflict. Because I think, um, yeah, it, we haven't really been, um, we haven't experienced anything like that yet. And the way that people are so vulnerable to persuasion um, is is really like people have always been far more vulnerable to persuasion than than they realize and this is something that i had learned during my marketing degree that it was kind of amazing how many people are like oh yeah i ads don't persuade me or i i don't get convinced by any of that stuff but you know it, it obviously works is there is a reason that that these industries are enormous industries um, they're not just throwing their money away on nothing so they do work um, to a degree that we're not really fully aware of. And uh, what it would look like in a conflict, I think, would be pretty amazing. There's a line in the book where one of the characters is is looking at the younger generation and thinks, um, there was a depthless narcissism to them that seemed to go beyond mere youthful self-absorption. 
And I was just curious, is that just something in the book or does that, is that based on anything you feel about society today? Oh, it's, yeah. I mean, to a degree, like I'm, I'm a lot older now than, than I used to be. Uh, I'm 47 now. I started at 23 when I first started publishing books. And I think you can tell if you read my books that, you know, my viewpoint has changed a bit. Um, I'm always amazed at, at how, how we evolve um over over time like i i maybe have less in common with the person i was 20 years ago than with someone my own age now so it's just it really does change you um so yeah and i i feel like too that it is an actual problem for employers generally um possibly for the military in particular that uh you can't really just get people you can't just hire people and tell them what to do and expect them to do it um there is much more of a need to actually uh, value them as people and to consider uh, what they may be trying to get out of it as a career as well. So, um, yeah, I found it fun for um, for Jackson in this chapter, who is um, a very old school military person who um, has seen the conflict um, up close and so doesn't really have any patience with um, with people wanting to know what they're going to get out of their military career um, to run into these uh, these younger crew members who are a bit more interested in, um, you know, their own life experience. I mean, do you think that that sort of narcissism is a natural outgrowth of the technology where YouTubers are the biggest celebrities and stuff? Or is it, do you think it comes from something else? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's pretty natural for, for younger people to be more narcissistic. You're kind of discovering who you are and, and being fascinated with it to a degree. And then um, as you get older, um, especially I think if you have kids and it just gets drummed into you as you're changing filthy diapers in, in the middle mm-hmm. of the night that it, the world is actually not all about you um, after all. Um, that yeah, it's yeah, you do change. So it's probably pandered to a bit more in the way that everything is pandered to a bit more nowadays. Um, that's um, the society that we live in, where it's uh, if you can come up with a good way to make people feel good about themselves for a minute, um, then you can make money out of it. Um, but yeah, it's uh, yeah, I wouldn't say the YouTube thing in particular is is about that. Um, that's more about celebrity, I guess, than narcissism, but. But yeah, I do think that it's uh it's kind of an age thing. Mm. I mean, there's a, there's a note at the very end of the book where you you sort of thank the readers for for reading a book at all, given all the other distractions and entertainment and things like that. Do you feel like um, and, you know, the, there have been these studies about how reading fiction in particular and putting yourself inside the heads of other people makes you more empathetic. And do you think there's any link between? people not reading books and not being as empathetic as, as maybe they could be? Yeah, that is, that's a really interesting question. I, I hadn't really thought about that before, but yeah, I mean, obviously the, the premise is true that people are reading less and, you know, I'm reading less too. I'm, I'm definitely guilty of it because we got these amazing devices that we get to carry around with us and have the rest of the world and, and the other side of a screen. So it's, there are so many forms of entertainment that are easily accessible now. Um, and they're great. You know, it's, it's fantastic to be able to go, um, you know, play a cool game on your phone or to, to read about, um, you know, people discussing politics or discussing sci-fi or whatever you want to talk about. All of that, um, has really enhanced our lives in, in a lot of ways. But, um, it does mean, yeah, that there's probably less of us sitting around reading books for hours just because there's nothing better to do. <laughs> so it's, um, 
Yeah, like you catch a train nowadays and it used to be full of people reading books and now you hardly ever see a book on the train. At least I, I don't. I see everyone on their phones. Um, so yeah, that's, that is interesting. Um, I do agree also that, that reading books makes you more empathetic. Um, and I think it's really tough for anyone who's a big reader to, to not have that ability to put themselves in other people's shoes because that's what you do. You, you go put yourself in, in the shoes of characters that you're reading about over and over and you see the world through so many different eyes. So the, People who are not practiced at that, who who didn't read or have stopped reading and maybe lose that, then, yeah, I mean, that would make a lot of sense to me. You mentioned that, you know, that your first book um, didn't do well or that the second book did better because you did this, um, the, the, the game, the, um, what was it called, Nation States? Do you think that more authors need to do, sort of get online and, and do games or, or something? Like, what what role do you think that sort of marketing plays for for novelists today yes jennifer government definitely uh, was helped by nation states um and i don't know how repeatable it is because it was a long time ago it was 2003 when that book came out and so me creating a web game to promote it was something that was kind of new and exciting and it got attention in the mainstream press even i think the new york times did a little piece on how you know this this um, author has created this website and you can make your own country. And, then, <laughs> you know, now that sort of stuff gets thrown onto the web eight times a day. So it's it's a little bit different now. It's a different landscape. And I've been left behind to a degree in that me having a website and having a blog was, was also one of those things that was new and exciting 20 years ago. But um, nowadays, blogs aren't really a thing anymore. It's, you've got to be big on Facebook or Instagram or, or maybe Twitter. So it's yeah i don't really know what you do as the next thing i guess you become a streamer um or you become a an instagram live person an influencer and and then you you do that but uh yeah i mean i i felt really grateful for suddenly having this situation where the two things that i'd really been practicing my whole life which is writing fiction and writing code i could suddenly combine into a way where they um could help each other and it could um it could promote my book and um yeah the first novel syrup um did definitely sell very poorly it was um it uh, it just vanished without a trace because people don't really buy books by authors they've never heard of uh so i i don't really have like a good answer for how you do it today um and how you sort of break through and do something new and exciting but you know smarter people than me will probably come up with good ideas to do it um using platforms that uh, i i haven't even heard of yet <laughs> What is this in the acknowledgments? Uh, what is this story? You say thank you also to Ivan Held, who before he became my publisher was on the very first cover of my very first novel. What's this story? Yeah. Then? So yeah. So um, okay. So the story is uh, is about syrup. So um, I had I, I wrote this book and it was a satire of the marketing industry and about consumerism. And one of the things that I was kind of particular about at the time was that this character, the main character's name is Scat. And I was a bit worried that they would put a picture of some young hunky guy on the cover. And I thought that would undermine my story because my, my, my story is kind of a bit about superficiality and, and how everything is about looks and, and nothing else matters. And I thought if there was, if they showed that the main character was some really handsome guy, then that would just really 
destroy uh, part of that message. So uh, as it turned out, that didn't happen. Um, they went in the other direction and they decided that they would put a picture of um, Ivan Held, who at the time was the marketing manager of uh, of Penguin. And Ivan, um, I'm not quite sure how old he was at the time, but quite a lot older than my character, um, wearing these natty glasses and with his slick corporate hair. And it was um, the way opposite of, of what I'd, I'd had in mind. <laughs> and the way this was pitched to me was, um, oh, Max, we've got this fantastic idea. Uh, you've written this novel about marketing. We're going to put our marketing manager <laughs> on the cover. And, you know, I, it still doesn't make sense to me now as to how anyone <laughs> outside of that company would, you know, make the connection or find that funny in any way. But anyway, um, I, you know, made my, my pitch about, you know, I don't know if that's the best way to go. I'd prefer you not do that. And that's when I discovered that although as the author, you have a lot of control over what happens between the covers in your book, you don't have any control over the, the front and the back. And so they decided they were going to go with that cover anyway. And so Ivan is uh, is on the cover of the first edition of my first novel. Um, so anyway, there was, you know, just a thing that happened. Um, but then in the ensuing years, Ivan um, moved up through the publishing industry to become a, a titan of the landscape that he is today. And so um, he's ended up running the publisher that is um, now um, – publishing providence as well as my next book so um that was just kind of an amazing uh little coincidence that uh me and ivan are back together again after all these years yeah that's that's really funny um i guess probably the last thing i'll have a chance to ask you about is i also wanted to just ask you about you had a short story published uh, a few months ago called it came from cruden farm and yes i don't know how much you want to give away about what happens in the story but i thought it was a great story and um oh, thank you yeah i don't know how, how much how, how much do you want to say about that story or yeah well um let's let's find out i'll, I'll <laughs> about um uh, a guy the president a new president is elected um and he one of the first things he does is make a joke about how you know now you have to show me the alien you've got it area 51 and um, he's told, uh, well, okay, um, if you really want to. So um, there is actually an alien at Area 51, um, and they uh, they go to um, to find out what it is. Uh, it's been there for um, quite a long time. The the government has kept it secret all this time. Um, and it is um, the story, short story is a comedy, basically a social comedy and a political comedy. And um, it turns out that this alien has been kept for. Um, for all this time and it's been fed a diet of media to try to socialize it and teach it language and it has become fairly radicalized by um by fox news in particular along with some some other shows and it has some very unpalatable political opinions now so they're not really sure what to do about it um so yeah it was um i got invited to do that um by um uh by uh was it arizona university and they have a, a terrific future tense program going there and so yeah they they basically asked me for a story that fit their theme of the month which was politics and so um i thought yeah it would be a good chance to to tell this story um it's actually based loosely on uh a, one of the four books that i was working on at the same time um as providence or one of the other three books and which is this idea that we are invaded by uh political aliens 
Um, so it was, yeah, just a, a bit of fun, really. Um, but also a, a chance for me to play around with, uh, what's happened to us as a, as, um, what's happened to the persuasion industry, which has become increasingly pointed over the last uh, couple of decades. And, you know, it, it, it seems trite, of course, and many people have made this point before me, but the way that we have moved into an age of information and yet, uh, seems less informed than others than ever that that there can be so many easy ways to to gain information uh, and yet the truth is is still murky um it's just it blows my mind sometimes and and just amazes me that um that we can all live in the same world and see the same world out our window and yet uh we have such wildly different ideas about what it all means um that's weird, which is really a, a a storytelling thing that we um, that we tell different stories to ourselves. Um, and as a storyteller myself, I've, it's something that I've tried to refine my understanding of over the last couple of decades where I've really come to appreciate how much storytelling happens in the head of the reader and that it isn't me typing out on a keyboard and saying exactly what this thing looks like or exactly how this thing works. That if I can, sketch out enough that the all the important parts are filled in by the reader in their head then that is the most impactful way of storytelling uh, it it happens in in the in the stage in the reader's mind it doesn't happen on the page so um yeah it's it's something that i've really been interested in for a long time that, that how all that works and um misinformation is is you know not a million miles away from fiction writing so it's it's not a completely different universe for me so this this alien character who's this kind of toxic internet troll, do you uh, have run-ins with those kinds of people ever or have you successfully managed to avoid them? Well, you know, I did mention that I have this web game Nation States, which is a, a political game basically in that you can create your own country and it can be, you know, far left if you want, it can be far right, it can it can follow whatever political ideals you hold dear. So um, in the early days of this, so maybe like, 2005 2006 we were getting these nazis showing up in the sense that they wanted to um create nazi style um countries and yeah i think it took me a while to kind of get my head around this because it seemed really strange to me that in the 21st century that you would have people who who wanted to be nazis um and it was kind of hard to tell whether they were like really wanted to be Nazis or whether they were just, you know, having a bit of fun with role playing a country, um, you know, just because it was a game. So, um, yeah, but they never really went away and, and they just became more and more numerous um, to the point where we basically had to, um, you know, take action to, to boot them out. Um, which is not something you really want to do on a site that's about, um, free political discussion. But unfortunately, um, unless you put up some reasonably high standards uh, of moderation these places do get increasingly filled with trolls so um yeah so it's yeah i have had encounters with those people um it's yeah and and sometimes it's um illuminating for me because i think as a writer you've always got to try to put yourself in the shoes of other people and if someone's making an argument that sounds totally insane then i will try to unpack that argument until doesn't seem insane based on if i assume certain things um, if it's if i'm like oh that's just stupid that person's an idiot then i'm not doing justice i'm i'm not understanding where it's coming from because everything makes sense to to people in their own heads you just have to figure out the the framework that they're operating from within 
so yeah it's um there is a lot of it out there uh i think a lot of it is people who kind of feel overwhelmed by i don't want to talk down to this this viewpoint but who feel like it's there's so much um there's so com- much complexity to the social politics now that they would like to just push all that aside and and go with um with something simpler um but yeah it's you know it's out there unfortunately it's it's become pretty toxic and it's become pretty racist um and you know, it probably always was but uh that is that is the modern world so um yeah to a degree i i think it's good that the internet allows us to um to see this and to be collectively aware of of different viewpoints that are out there it's kind of better when that happens than when everybody's in their own silos just believing their own groupthink and being totally ignorant of everyone else but um but yeah it's not great yeah well i guess if you have a game with 6 million countries you can have all sorts of you're going to get a few nazis ideas, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right um, all right, so we're we're pretty much out of time. So I just want to say, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that story again. It's called "It Came from Cruden Farm," and I really enjoyed Providence. It's a um, it's really a page turner. It's really thoughtful. It has a really interesting combination of sort of lightheartedness and creepiness that I think is really distinctive, and you know that I don't I don't re- really see very much. Oh yeah, that's no, that's where I like to operate. Where it's like it's creepy, but also you're not sure if it's creepy or funny. <laughs> Uh, or it's both, you know, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, do you have any other, uh, any final thoughts or any other projects you want to mention? Uh, no, that's, you know, I've, I've got one of these other three books that I've been working on that um, will hopefully be ready for publication next year. So I, I don't want to like talk about it yet because uh, I'm incredibly superstitious about talking about projects before they are actually nailed down and people have promised to publish them. But um, yeah, I'm really hopeful that next year I can actually get over to the States and, and do a book tour that was scheduled for March 31 this year. Um, and then that didn't happen. So it was my, I've been looking forward to getting back to, to actually visiting a few bookstores and, and seeing some, some people, some readers who have been coming along and, um, reading my stuff for a long time and turning up to my events for a long time. So I really hope I get back to to do that next year, um, either with the paperback release of Providence um, or with a new book or both. Um, but yeah, until then, I'm, I'm stuck over here in Australia, isolating like uh, everyone else. Yeah. Well, yeah, I certainly hope that you're able to do that. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that every, anyone who reads Providence is going to you know want to come out and see you because it's a terrific book. Um, so yeah, so Max, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, Dave. That was terrific. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Max Berry for joining us on the show. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoyed the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com slash geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarrkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell 
no one. Thank you for listening. 